tale of two cities. So uh, some will say that after the Bible and after uh, Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress, Tale of Two Cities is the highest selling novel of all time. And so uh, this morning we're going to take a different approach to that. We're going to look at what I will call a tale of two cups. And the reason that we're doing that is because when we look at Luke's account of the Last Supper and uh, Jesus' crucifixion in that time before uh, his arrest and his death, we do see two cups. The first cup is a cup of blessing. It's a, it's a man that's beyond our comprehension. Um, but then we see a second cup, and this is a cup of wrath. It is uh, a cup that uh, is wrath that goes beyond anything that we are able to endure. So where the first cup highlights a blessing, the second cup highlights a curse. So before we even talk of the first cup of communion, we need to focus on the second cup. And I want to do this for one really important reason. And the reason that is, is because one thing that I think is lacking, not just in the church today, but, or the church in America, but the church all over the world, is this, you know, they, they, we don't have a proper understanding of the atonement. We just don't really seem to fully grasp what is meant when we preach of the, the sacrificial atoning death of Christ. Find what Jesus accomplished. So here is the thing. This is one of the most neglected truths in all of Christianity. One of the most neglected theological truths that we can possibly know. See, one of the most common answers to the question of uh, what did Jesus die to save us from is that Jesus came to die to save us from our sins. And that is absolutely true. Jesus did all of that. But the thing is, he did so much more than just die to save us from our sins. The problem is, is that if, if that is where we stop with Christ's sacrifice, if all we're saying is that he died to save us from our sins and that's where we end it, then, then we miss what I think is probably the most important thing that Jesus saved us from. You see, if all Jesus did was, was die to save us from our sins and make us slightly better people, there's so many extra problems that we have with that. To be better versions of ourselves, die to the main thing that we need to be is not better versions of ourselves. We need to be made totally new, right? Like we need to be made re-new, not just a little bit better than what we were. So the most important thing that Jesus saves us from is not our sin, but the wrath and perfect judgment of God towards us because of those sins. The most important thing that Christ saves us from is the curse that is on every single person that disobeys the Lord. Christ saves us from the wrath of God. That's the most important thing that Christ saved us from. And it is horribly neglected throughout the, the minds of the saints and in the church today. So before we really talk about how it says in Luke 22, 39 through 44, um, Jesus is uh, on his way to the garden, as we're going to see, and uh, we read, And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. So here we see Jesus in a state of ceased being God. His humanity is shining forth 
in this moment. Now, I share this. If, if you were at the Back to School Bash, uh, some of this might sound familiar, but I told you that, that Jesus did not die an ordinary death. Crucifixion was one of the most common forms of, of punishment and death in the first century. So people are no, back then were no stranger to crucifixion. But his death was unlike anything else in human history because what he endured was unlike anything else in human history. See, his trials, his agony, and his suffering did not start as the nails went into his hands, as the nails went into his feet, as, as, the, as the leaders were, were whipping him and tearing the flesh off of his bone. It didn't happen as soon as here in the garden. And I think it's funny because, well, not funny, but almost ironic that the great battle for, for man's soul starts in a garden. And here we have the savior of mankind having this war with his flesh and his, his deity in, the, in a garden. Just as the serpent was going to battle against Adam and Eve, here we see the son of Adam and Eve, the seed, going to battle against the serpent. We read in these verses that Christ was in the state of agony, and there's, the word that is used there in Greek is agonia, and it is only ever used once here in the Bible, and it is used right here. So the definition going on, we read that Christ sweat blood, and this is such an extremely rare medical condition that some people don't even know exactly what it is that causes it. They just know that it is due to extreme distress and fear. So repeatedly, Christ is praying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup, remove this cup. And he does this multiple times. He's praying it over and over until an angel needs to come and encourage him. But even that does not seem to help because it's after the angel comes, that's when we see him starting to sweat blood. And we know it's not really recorded in Scripture, but do we really think that Satan was just sitting off to the side, ignoring him, not doing anything, as Christ is in this moment of, of that the devil that was tempting him three years earlier was coming and saying, you don't have to drink that cup. You don't have to, to do this. There's another way you can ignore all this. I'll give you everything I promised you back then. I can give to you right now. You don't have to do it. Do we not think that, that he's in there and he's just like beating that into his head of saying, you don't have to do it? And so the thing that we need to ask is, is what was it that caused Jesus so much dread, so much fear, so much anxiety that he would sweat blood, that we would get to this moment where we see a, a Greek word that is only used once. The question that we need to ask is what was in that cup? What was in the cup that Christ asked the Almighty God that was in that cup? So Leonard Ravenhill, he said, And the Father gave a cup of all the dregs of impurity and wickedness in it. He did not give it to Gabriel. He didn't give it to Michael the archangel. Or archangel. He gave it to his son. You see, in the Old Testament, when we read of the, the cup in God's hand, it's never, it's, never in a, in, in a, it's never put in this good light. Nobody's ever volunteering to receive the cup that is in the hand of the Lord. In Psalm 75, verses 7 and 8, we read, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it. And all the wicked of the earth shall Jeremiah 25, 15, that the cup in the hand of the Lord is the cup of his wrath. And you see, this is what's neglected in the church today. We ask people all the time, I'm sure if you go up to somebody and ask, uh, do you want to be saved? But one of the most common responses that you're going to get is saved from what? Saved from uh, a bad relationship, saved from a political party, saved from doubt, saved from what? 
Uh, and then we say, well, do you want to be saved from your sins? And people will say, is that all? Sure, why not? Because in their mind, they don't think of themselves as that bad of a person. Most of the time, people don't think that they're that bad. But what we need to do is our sin. So not only are we bad, we are much worse than we think we are. We're not just... We're not just saved from sin. We're saved from the righteous wrath of God. And when we understand that, everything changes. You see, we have this mindset, uh, and it's a very dangerous mindset to have, that, that really what God is today is, you know, he, he has this reputation in the Old Testament, but we're out of the Old Testament. His wrath subsided. His anger's gone. Now he's just that kind old man that lives upstairs in the upstairs apartment. And uh, for the most part, he's just going to let us be unless maybe we play the music a little too loud or if we're, we're doing this or that, we might, uh, you know, get a, a little nod. He's a nice guy when he's there. He might not even be there, uh, but, and he won't really get in the way of what I want to do. But in the, Francis Schaeffer, he has an amazing book, and it's a, the, just the title of the book is a great reminder that God is there and he is not silent. So... America and the world at large, we have this sissified version of the Lord in our minds. We have this view that, that God is, is just needy, he's little, that he needs defending, that he needs to be rescued, and that he's just, just begging for us, that he's longing for us to, to come and just, just help him along because he's this little old man that, and we just got to help him. That we serve, that version of God that, that we think that needs our defending, that needs our help, that's not the God of the Bible. It's not the God of the universe, and he's not the God that we as the church serve. And it blows my mind that, that there's so many politicians, no matter where you are in terms of politics. My, my thing is, is that I always remember that Jesus was not a, a white middle-class Republican, that, you know, he, he's the son of God. And so... Uh, there's that. Use that how you want it. Um, but it blows my mind that no matter where you're at, there's politicians that are saying, well, if you vote for me, I'll protect the church. I will protect God so that you guys can continue to worship him. But here's the thing. God does not... I, I, I'm amazed at the story in the Bible where, where one angel destroys 185,000 soldiers in the time of Hezekiah. Just one angel destroys almost 200,000 soldiers in one evening. Imagine what our God is capable of. Like, he's saying, he probably even sent out, like, the weakest angel possible, the one that had, like, a broken wing or something, just like, hey, go take care of it. And uh, you know what? He did it. We belittled God, and because we belittled him, we've neglected the curse that is spoken of in Scripture. So what is the curse? Paul tells us in Galatians 3.13 that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree to be for the people if they were going to be faithful to the Lord. So we see 14 verses that speak of blessings of obedience. I'm just going to read a couple of them. Uh, it says, And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. We see 14 verses. Of, of just blessings for the people that obey to the Lord, or this reminder to, to do his will, to, to follow after him. But after that, after these 14 for those that are disobedient towards the Lord, 
In number six, we read of the great blessing that was to be read by the priest as he blessed the people of Israel. And in fact, thanks to Carrie Job, we sing it all the time now. Uh, we read, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. And Carrie Job will then say, and for your children and 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 your children and, your children and forever. Uh, but here's the thing. Here's what I want us to understand. Is that as Jesus bore the curse of sin on himself, as the cup of God's wrath was poured out on him in full, is, or what he's saying to Christ is, may the Lord curse you and forsake you. May the Lord hide his face from you and condemn you. The Lord gives you no peace, only death, for my name is upon you and I curse you. R.C. Sproul said that as our sin was placed on Christ, the totally pure Son of God was pure no more because he was covered by our sin. He's not covered by his own sin. He's covered by ours. And Sproul goes on to say that God cursed him. It was as if there were a cry from heaven. It was as if Jesus heard the words, God has damned you, because that's what it meant to be cursed, to be damned, to be under the anathema of a father. See, I wish we had time to, to just even talk about this more, but, it, you know, it's, it's already 1140. I probably shouldn't say that, but anyway. It means a lot. <laughs> Christ bore the curse on our behalf. Every curse that was revealed in the Old Testament, every punishment that was due towards sin, Christ took on himself. He took the punishment that we deserve because of our disobedience. The curse that God put forth for all that disobey him was placed firmly on his son. And Paul, he tells us this, this great reminder, this great truth, that for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now Paul is not saying that Jesus committed sin on our behalf. He's not saying that, that, that Jesus... saying is that at the cross, our sins were imputed to Jesus. Our sins are attributed to him. So... All of my sin that is due to be punished on me, Christ takes on himself that was placed on the Son of God. So all the time we sing this song by the Gettys called In Christ Alone, right? And there's that line in the song that goes, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was what? It was satisfied. Somebody was at the first service or at the back to school bash where I said that. The wrath of God was satisfied on for every sin on him was laid, and here in the death of Christ I live. We're not singing that sin's payment was satisfied or that, that our perfection was earned and that causes us to be made alive in Christ. But instead what we sing is that the wrath of God was satisfied and because his wrath has been satisfied, called the great exchange because not only does Christ receive our sins and the punishment that we deserve, that righteousness that he has is placed on us. So you see this exchange, right? This, this, I'll give you all of this. I'll give you this punishment that I deserve, and you give me the reward that you are due. And so, what we need to remember is that we have received his righteousness in return. John Piper said that when Jesus, uh, or what Jesus experienced, the curse of the law on the cross, it was not his own, but ours. The good news for people who have come under the curse of God for sin is that God was in Christ, reconciled and hope in him while we live. You see, because Jesus took the curse on himself, because Christ drank the cup of God's wrath, we live. And as we live this new life, we are reminded now of the first cup 
that Christ offers in Luke 22. So in Luke 22, 14 through 20, we read, And when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten. See, this cup that we are about to receive, we take in remembrance of him and the cup that he drank on our behalf. Because he drank the cup that we were owed, the cup that we deserved, we can drink the cup that points us ahead to the victory that he has already accomplished, the victory that we will receive. So Christ bore the curse so that we would bear the blessing. Now we go, as in response to this, we go and we do all things in remembrance of him and in anticipation of his coming again. So when we take this cup, which is the symbol of his blood poured out for us, we remember and we proclaim that Christ has died, but more than he has died, he has risen and that he is going to come again. So way back in the time of Moses, uh, when the people of Israel were about to, to leave Egypt, they celebrated Passover. And what they did, that painting on the door frames would, would be a symbol for the angel of death to pass over them. For centuries, they would slaughter lambs in remembrance of that great day of deliverance. But what they did not realize at that time was that that day of Passover was only a small picture of the much greater deliverance that God had in store for all that believed in him. So as they looked to the spilt blood of the lamb to remind them of their deliverance, we look to the slaughtered lamb of God who has been raised again and remember that he has delivered us from an even greater enemy and an even greater imprisonment. So because Christ did that on our behalf, we can take part in this communion moment. Because Jesus took the punishment that you deserve, we have this tremendous opportunity to, to live for him. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray, and we're going to worship together. And, and as we're for you, take the time to reflect on what it means to uh, take part in the Lord's Supper and how Jesus has saved us from the wrath to come because he bore the wrath on himself. So I'm going to pray, and then we are going to worship together. So let's pray. Dear Lord, we are so grateful and thankful for what you have done for us. Words cannot even begin to describe what it must have been like as you took the agony of the cross and as you stood in our place. Lord, may we not take that for granted. Lord, I just pray that as we are about to take part in the Lord's Supper, that we remember and proclaim all that you have done, and we look ahead to the day when we are with you again. And so we love you and we thank you, and it's in Jesus' name, amen.